This interview is recorded February 4th, 2022 at Combined Sections Meeting in San Antonio. Today we welcome James Carey to our interview. Dr. Carey is a professor emeritus in the Division of Physical Therapy at the University of Minnesota. He received both his bachelor's and master's degree in physical therapy, as well as his PhD in kinesiology at the University of Minnesota. He did a sabbatical in transcranial magnetic stimulation, or TMS, at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center at Harvard Medical School in Boston, Massachusetts. He has held PT faculty positions at the University of Puget Sound in Tacoma, Washington, College of St. Scholastica in Duluth, Minnesota, the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, and the University of Minnesota. He recently retired from the University of Minnesota after 31 years, of which 19 were as director. His teaching focused on gross anatomy and neuroplasticity, and his research areas included stroke, motor control, transcranial magnetic stimulation, and functional neuroimaging. He has served as co-director of the Brain Plasticity Laboratory at the University of Minnesota. His accomplishments include authoring 65 papers in peer-reviewed journals and being a Catherine Rithingham Fellow of the APTA. He is the 2022 recipient of the Anne Shumway Cook Lectureship, Translating Research to Practice, and later today will present his thoughts on difficulties, mistakes, accomplishments, and the future of stroke rehab. Welcome, Dr. Carey. Thanks very much for having me. Uh, our pleasure. Go ahead. All right. So why did you become a PT? Good question. I became a PT because at the time, back as a 19-year-old, at, I, as an 18-year-old, I entered college, and I had a, a career path that followed my dad's in business administration, but I don't know why I pursued that. I mean, because it was my dad, I guess. But um, I quickly learned that business administration is not what I wanted to do. But I was into muscles and bones at that particular time in my life. And so I inquired in the physical therapy division there at that time that, you know, what does it take to become a PT? What's it like? And, and so forth. And um, in talking to a couple of faculty, they convinced me that this is what I wanted to do. I mean... Their, their description convinced me that this is what I wanted to do. I wanted to help people, and if I could do it through physical activity, um, then that would be ideal. And so I pursued it and was lucky enough to get in, and the rest is history, I guess. Good deal. So your early research um, really started off in, in stroke, a few other things, but stroke from the start, and then you progressed to considerable study in transcranial magnetic stimulation. So what drove your interest in stroke and TMS? Well, the pursuit of stroke stemmed from my early clinical work in the first five years of my career after graduating. I had worked in an acute care setting, but primarily in people with stroke, and then I moved on to another center in the same region, uh, which was a, an outpatient uh, neurorehab center that dealt heavily with stroke. So I just happened to like the idea of helping people with recovery of motor skills, not just walking, but also uh, use of the upper extremity. It fascinated me. I enjoyed when they improved, I was disappointed when they didn't improve. 
um, I wanted to make it better. And uh, as I'll point out in my lecture later today, I was aware of the growing criticism of our profession at that time, this is in the mid-70s, for an absence of research. And so, um, although I had a little interest in it upon graduation, it, I didn't act on it. Um, but then this extra stimulus, in combination with what I was recognizing in the people with stroke, hmm, is there a better way to get more recovery? Um, I, uh, I thought that I would, uh, I would try this. I, I was fascinated by the topic of, of some early writers um, that uh, the brain is, yeah, there are neurons that are killed by the stroke, but there are other neurons that just become downregulated. Mm -hmm. And if they can be resurrected from their dormant state, then there could be higher recovery. I was fascinated by that topic that was shown in animals, and, and it was just beginning to be shown by Steve Wolf in, in, in humans. I thought, hmm, that would be fun to pursue that. And so that's where I began. And then uh, that evolved into um, the use of fMRI. Why? Because I just have to be lucky. Uh, I was at the University of Minnesota uh, where they had this worldwide center known for trans um, functional magnetic resonance imagery. They have they had like three or four magnets at the time. Now they have like 12 magnets. And they're all dedicated to research. And you didn't have to compete uh, with hospital-based uh, MRI centers uh, where the patients get first pick, of course, because they're there to be diagnosed. This was dedicated to research. So I really had access to it and the help of those biophysicists and, and other engineers in how actually to do it. And so I incorporated that into my early work and showed that uh, there, there is some brain reorganization as a result of what we do in physical therapy, which was encouraging. But is there another way to get this brain reorganization maximized? And so then I started looking at TMS, because that was emerging now at, at that time. I contacted Dr. Pasquale-Ohn in Boston, and... Uh, I asked if I could come there for a short sabbatical, six months, and he said, sure. Uh, and, and so I, I went there and, and learned the procedures and uh, struggled along the way at first, but gained some confidence. And he was a helpful advocate for me and research grants that followed, and we succeeded in getting you know, the necessary funding to get my own equipment onto a new lab. Excellent. So for those therapists listening that aren't familiar with TMS, can you give just like the little... Uh, Wikipedia version of what it's doing? Sure. So TMS is transcranial magnetic stimulation, and it involves application of a device that is handheld on the skull, and uh, when you know a certain switch is clicked, like with your foot, uh, it delivers a pulse of uh, electrical current through the coils that are embedded within this uh, stimulation coil resting on top of the person's head. And so an electrical current is delivered, and it's 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 an accelerating current. And it is, I don't know, I'm not sure if any people will remember the shortwave diathermy mm -hmm. that you guys do. Okay, you wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> but it involves this same principle of um, Faraday's law of electromagnetic induction, that when you surge an electrical current through a wire. 
um, it emits a magnetic signal that goes perpendicular to the current according to the right-hand rule, if you remember those physics days. And, and so then this electrical current sitting on top of the head creates a magnetic field that go, is invisible, you don't see it of course, but it goes perpendicular into the skull, through the skull with no problem. And uh, if there's charged particles inside the skull, which there are in the form of these ions that we have, they can be induced to move in response to this magnetic field that they're exposed to. And then that electrical, that ionic current that is created actually ends up as a stimulus to activate motor neurons in the region. So the point is that you can activate motor neurons that are within the skull on the surface. It, it penetrates about a couple of centimeters, uh, the, the magnetic field. And in so doing, it can activate neurons that are on the surface of the cortex, which the motor neurons are. And uh, you can get a response that will twitch the hand. And you can study the excitability uh, of them as a result of intervention. You know, get a baseline value of excitability. How much current does it take to activate those neurons uh, at baseline? Okay, then give the intervention for perhaps a week or two. And then do it again and see if a lesser amount of current is needed. To, to get them to be excited. So that's a, a simplistic way of stating how it can be used to study neuroplasticity. So you mentioned Steve Wolf. So are you doing any form of constraint therapy when you study? Actually, we did. Um, in a, my work dealt with what was called finger movement tracking training, which was forced use, which is a Steve Wolf phenom say phenomenon, a uh, principle uh, <laughs> of Steve Wolf is using forced use to help neurons upregulate in their excitability because they've been dormant from disuse by using the uninvolved size for every activity in the world. But if you can force the, the involved side to be used again, you can lower, you can improve the excitability of associated neurons. Right. So I applied that with a finger movement tracking training device, first of all. Um, it was forced use, but it was at a single joint, it was repeated exposure to a, a computerized task where they had to try and move their finger just the right amount to track a, a target on the screen. All right. um, and so that's how I was using forced use. But um, for a pediatric study that we did this TMS on, the training uh, also included um, constraint-induced movement therapy. And so there was a connection there mm -hmm. uh, to what uh, he had been doing. So based on the title of your lecture this afternoon, which is uh, talking about difficulty, mistakes, and accomplishments in stroke rehab, can you give us a little um, short synopsis of maybe some of your difficulties and mistakes as well as your accomplishments? Sure. The difficulties were, first of all, um, in recruiting a proper number, an N, uh, for, the, for the studies that would be of uh, of enough statistical power to show an effect. And there are so many criteria that need to be met uh, to uh, include them in the TMS studies that it made it, uh, for example, um, I, uh, I did a study and we got 213 people responded to an advertisement, to multiple advertisements, saying, yes, I'd be interested in participating. Of those, we ended up using 12 because so many of them didn't have the necessary criteria that were needed 
uh, to conduct the study. So that was a frustration. That was a difficulty that persisted all the way through my work. I was able to still succeed, but it would have been probably greater success if I had been in a clinical center where stroke was a prevailing diagnosis that was heavily uh, situated in that environment. The University of Minnesota had people with stroke in the, in the medical facility that I was attached to, you know, as part of the medical school. But the big uh, stroke centers were you know, 10 and 15 miles away. Uh, mm -hmm. still, still in the same city, but they attracted all of the, the, the great number of people with stroke. And so I didn't have mm -hmm. access to those individuals, which made it difficult. Mm -hmm. So that was one difficulty. Mm -hmm. uh, other difficulties besides recruitment of a, an adequate population, um, I guess uh, the, uh, the other uh, problem was myself. Okay, I, I guess I, I saw myself as a clinician that had converted into research, but I kept that clinician hat all the way through, and at times I felt inferior to all the science that was surrounding me at the University of Minnesota, um, biophysicists and engineers and biostatisticians that knew, I could do statistics, but not to the degree that um, was ultimately used. It was becoming more and more sophisticated than uh, what I had learned in graduate school. And so I, I felt that I needed the support of these other entities to accomplish the research goal that I had. When in my training, I kept hearing the word, oh, you got to be an independent researcher. That was what others were telling me at, in my youthful age back then. And you, have to be, you have to be able to do it all. And I didn't want to learn, I couldn't learn how to program a computer to do this tracking. I just was not into computer science. And so, and some of the electrical engineering stuff, the same thing. So I felt inadequate, but at the same time, I felt I brought an important piece to the table, and that was the ability to interact with patients. And I could raise the question. I knew the question, whereas the scientists, the other scientists did not. They didn't know what spasticity was or some of the other associated problems that go with stroke. So I did bring uh, a certain amount of skill to the area, much like all the clinicians that will be in the audience today have. But perhaps they, too, have the same feeling that, oh, I could never do research because of the shortcomings that I have in statistics or in engineering, when in fact, in the new world of academia, faculty development is so emphasized, at least it was at the University of Minnesota, and I, I'm sure it was at universities as well, that they want faculty to grow, and they're going to help people connect with other uh, researchers that could pick up the gap that I don't fill, they could fill. And so it worked. Uh, is the, um, the the message here, but it was a difficulty for a while, and, and uh, I just kept reminding hey, you're a clinician, and you're bringing an important piece to this table, just share the knowledge and grow from them, and they'll grow from you, which they did, and they said that too. So, so there are going to be many clinicians listening to this, young clinicians, that will describe their questions just like you did earlier. I thought it would be fun, I believe, is what you said earlier when you were describing those early days. And that they share that. I think it would be fun to answer this question. Exactly. What advice do you give to those clinicians that want to dabble in research 
Do they keep the clinician hat on? Do they, um, how, how do you have any um, insight into how you feel less inferior? Yes, I, I think um, biting the bullet or just jumping into it after you explore which particular location might be compatible, most compatible with your interests, uh, because not all places do neuroplasticity, and some do cardiovascular and integument, so forth. So, but I wanted, you know, the, the neurological element, and and so um, I, I I did what I've already said. So I won't, I won't go further mm-hmm. on that. But my advice would be to pick a center where you think you would enjoy working with the science that is occurring there, and the personality of the mentor that you would have there, the PhD advisor at that particular uh, center. Uh, and so that'll take some exploration, some phone calls, and a couple of meetings perhaps to find the ones, the one that is most interesting to you. Furthermore, uh, if uh, you're married, uh, that might be a difficult uh, add-on uh, to this to try and move the, you know, to move the whole family to you know, a thousand miles away to hit to the one center. Well, it may not be perfect. So you might have to pick a center that is local to you and just live with that. And that's okay too. Um, it just, you just make it work. You just make it work. And, uh, but to answer the question, do you need to surrender your clinical values uh, in order to become a researcher? No, I think that a person could retain uh, clinical or interaction on like a weekend, weekends. Uh, it's a full-time job uh, going through graduate school. Actually, it wasn't for me because I was a faculty at the same time. Um, and I was fortunate to, to have a, a paycheck uh, to, and also at a center where the university would... Uh, would cover the education in graduate school while I was a faculty. And so I didn't have to pay tuition. I had to pay taxes on the benefit, <laughs> but, that was, but that was minor. So um, my, my point uh, is that there's a lot of different conditions that influence the success of graduate school. And finances is one, and, and the mentorship of the the proper mentor is another, and the the, the amount of resources that exist at the center um, are all some of those factors. But do you need to surrender your own? No, no, because you were a born and bred clinician, and you just want to probably continue that uh, in your career. And so, for your advisor to totally cut that off from underneath you would probably not be advisable. And, and so I, I think you could maintain some clinical involvement and pursue it uh, that through the question that you raise for your own dissertation. That might be determined a lot by your advisor, but hopefully the advisor would recognize the skill that you bring to the table and allow you to keep that clinical involvement into your research question. This concludes the abbreviated version of the interview with Dr. Carey. Listen to the full version to hear Dr. Carey discuss the feasibility of using TMS and transcranial direct current stimulation in different settings, in addition to his thoughts on physical therapy education at an international level. Thank you for listening.